Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So when Pastor Don asked me to speak, you know, and, and I realized it was the week before the new year, I just thought, okay, what would be a good topic? So you can tell by the title, this is about the only slide you're going to see. I don't have a presentation. I'm not, uh, I don't know if I can preach and do technology at the same time, and I'm not, don't have the wherewithal to get things necessarily done ahead, time to get to Justin to help me out. So, um, but it, so it's out with the old and in with the new, and basically going to be teaching from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. So the first part of um, what's known as the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Mount. So um, I don't know about you, but I was, since I've had the uh, last week off, been thinking a lot about the upcoming new year, because can you believe it's going to be 2020? That's hard to believe. Not even just a new year, but a new decade. All right. Um, and so I, I'm old enough to remember when the year 2000 was supposed to be a big deal. I mean, I remember in sixth grade, my teacher, Mr. Zychek, saying, okay, what will you be doing in the year 2000? And we journaled on that. And I don't remember what I wrote, but I don't even, I doubt if I'm doing what I thought I was going to be doing back then, because God has definitely put some turns and twists in my life since then. Um, and by 2020, gosh, we were probably supposed to be living like the Jetsons. All right. And for those of you who don't know who the Jetsons are, Google it. You can, all right, figure it out. Okay. So um, it's, it's interesting Then I was also looking at some predictions for the year 2020 that were made in the corporate world, some, some predictions that were supposed to have happened by the year 2020. And these were predictions that were made in the last decade, so, or this decade. So for example, it said that computer chips will consume almost no energy. That was a prediction that was made by um, Intel. So, but guess what? That's not going to happen, all right? They are still requiring the latest uh, computer chip is requiring 165 watts of energy, and that's still twice as much as a 65-inch television, okay? So that's, that's not happening anytime soon. Um, back in 2014, it was predicted that uh, 9 out of 10 people over the age of 6 would own a mobile phone, and that's throughout the world. And that's not happening either. Right now, it's the local, uh, the latest statistics put it at about 67%, and they're seeing a decline as countries like the United States are making movements now. Those of you who are younger don't hate me. That maybe we should hold off until students are 13 or um, in the eighth grade before they get a smartphone or any kind of phone. So that's a new trend that we're seeing. So praise God. All right. Yeah. So <laughs> um, another one that I found interesting, Toyota predicted it would have a fully self-driving car by the year of 2020. It's not happening. All right. And they're not sure yet when they're going to have that technology available. Um, how about Bitcoin? Anybody know what Bitcoin is? All right. Uh, 
John McAfee, he, the guy who does you know all the spyware stuff and everything, uh, he predicted that Bitcoin would be worth a million dollars by the year 2020. As of this week, it is worth $7,200. So obviously that didn't pan out. And let's see, the last one. Oh, I thought this one was interesting too. Dyson would be selling an electric car. So they're not happy with hand dryers and vacuums and everything. Um, and they are now saying it is not commercially viable. Um, oh, last. Uber was going to deploy flying cars was another thing that was predicted. They said they've had to put that off to 2023. So there's the Jetsons for you, you know, those, those flying cars. So those were some of the predictions that were supposed to have taken place by next year, which is a week away now, or less than a week away. So I found that very interesting. Um, so, but as the year closes and a new year opens up, um, I don't know about you guys, but I kind of tend to reflect on what took place in the previous year. And then I begin to pray and reflect on some goals and events, Lord willing, for the next. I don't do the resolution thing. You know, um, I do sit and think about, you know, how well or poorly my favorite sports team did and maybe some of the healthy things I should have or did or didn't do and that kind of stuff. But some of the big things I thought about, I thought a lot about how much longer I'm gonna teach, all right? Because I'm kind of on that border of, you know, am I ready to retire? Should I retire kind of thing? You know, what Holly and my role should be in our Bible study that we're a part of in our community and stuff. Um, uh, this year was kind of interesting because I thought about the fact that this year was the time that I lived longer than my mom. My mom died when she was 57, and I turned 58 this year. So, all right, so that was kind of an interesting thing to think that, okay, you know, my mom passed early, and so now I'm older than her. My dad died at 62, so I got a few years, all right, but I know, my parents passed rather early, and so, um, as far as 2020, all right, I do think about is this the year that the Dodgers will win the World Series? That's, that's, that's every year. Not as bad as the Cubs, I know, but still, I always think about that. All right, um, I, I think about the fact this is upcoming year is a year of a Summer of Olympics. We like watching the Summer Olympics, so that's always a good thing, 2020. But that also means then we have to navigate through another presidential election. So whenever I think of the Summer Olympics, I always think of, you know, and we won't even go down that road and what that has to hold, all right? But that's this year as well, all right? Um, I continue to think about how long until I retire, all right? Uh, <laughs> there's a theme there, right? So um, the fact that we're thinking about how Holly and I are going back to school starting this next month, um, how Holly and I are going to be married 30 years this upcoming year. So that's that's a, that's an awesome blessing. Um, and I think this year I'm going to read the Bible in chronological order again. I don't know if you've ever done that, but that's always a. It, it was really interesting the first time I did that to really help me understand the prophets better. You know those books. It's like okay, so what were they talking about when they were doing that? So if you, so for me that's kind of one of my things I'm going to work through this year. 
And then what sort of blessings? I always think about, okay, we always say, you know, we want the Lord to bless us and everything. And we, I was thinking about, okay, so what kind of blessings would I want this year? And that's what kind of led me towards Matthew 5. Because if you talk about a passage where uh, Jesus is talking about being blessed, that is definitely the passage. You know, I remember when I was uh, in elementary school, this church we went to had a big push in memorizing scripture and, and things like that. And I remember not just verses, but passages like the Ten Commandments, and that it was kind of cool, the songs this morning, the 23rd Psalm. Um, there was a couple that kind of reflected on that this morning because that was a, um, it's my, one of my favorite passages in the Bible as well. But then also the Beatitudes. So that's the beginning of Matthew 5 is called the Beatitudes when Jesus is talking about all being blessed and things like that. Um, it's interesting to know that that's one of Jesus's earliest known sermons. All right. It's one of five major sermons that he did in the book of Matthew. Um, and it's also his longest that's recorded because it's chapters five through seven of Matthew. Um, so let's go ahead and jump into the passage. All right. As I was doing some studying, also learned that the Sermon on the Mount has been considered by many as one of the most misunderstood messages that Jesus ever gave. Not that anybody ever misunderstands the Bible, right? I mean, it's so some say that it's a means to salvation, you know, and that or that we need to obey these rules that he's talking about in order to have any chance at heaven. Others say it's a charter for world peace, um, that all we as humans need to do is accept it and live by it. Others say that it's not even for today. They believe it's for the future kingdom, perhaps the millennial kingdom. Yet. I believe the pivotal verse to answer all of these claims is in verse 20. So we're going to jump down to the end of the passage and then go back up to the top. So Matthew 5, verse 20, it says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teacher of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So when I look at that, to me, that shows me that the theme of the message is for today. It's not for salvation, nor is it some mystical blueprint for world peace, but it's to show how a truly Christ-filled, Christ-changed life should be living. To me, the theme is true spiritual righteousness, and that's a pretty good goal to consider as we enter into a new year. So back up to verses one and two. So Jesus has uh, just begun to find all of his disciples. He's called his first disciples. He's gone around, started to do some teaching and preaching and healing throughout the surrounding areas. And he's getting quite a following now. And that's what brings us then to chapter five, where it says, when he saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and then he began to teach them, saying. So before we work into his words, I want us to understand that there is quite a different, diverse crowd that's with him during this audience. It's rather mixed. He would, first of all, have his disciples close by, because that's who he was primarily talking to, was, first of all, his disciples. And then there would be the Pharisees who would be close by as well because they were there probably taking notes and ready to say, uh-uh, wrong, 
wrong. You know, we, we know how the Pharisees kind of play out in this story. All right. And then you have this huge crowd that's following him as he starts to explain just what true spiritual righteousness is. And he starts with the emphasis on righteous character and the blessing it brings to life of a true believer. Now, I can only imagine that Jesus, the crowd was riveted on Jesus when he started to say the word blessed or blessed. Because the word in the Hebrew means a divine joy, a perfect happiness. So that's going to catch their attention right from the very beginning. So this word implies an inner satisfaction and sufficiency that did not depend on outward circumstances for happiness. And man, isn't that the case for us? Don't we want, not want these, this, all this stuff around us to have an impact on who we are in Christ? You know, that, that idea of joy and being blessed is so much more important than, you know, all the stuff and everything that we have. Not that that stuff is bad, but if we try to have that be the reason for our happiness and such, that's when we start maybe, you know, keeping our view on Christ. So just as Christ followers, we should find this riveting as well. We should want this in our own lives also. And so the first part is, I believe Jesus is saying, what is true righteousness? And first he says, it's reflected in our attitudes towards ourself. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. So he's saying to be humble, to have a correct estimate of ourselves. Paul says in Romans 12, 3, for by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. See, it's opposite of the uh, world's idea of you're the man or you're the woman or whatever the latest catchphrase is, saying that, you know, you, you're above everybody else. At the same time, it's not a sense of false humility. It's honesty with ourselves and that we know ourselves and we accept ourselves in Christ. I think that's the important piece is, you know, you know once again, that, that saying God doesn't create junk. That's so true. And who we are in Christ is so important. Our self-concept of where we are in him. And to try to be ourselves through the power of and to the glory of God. So that's what Jesus is talking about here. And then, and in the next verse, he, he's showing true righteousness is reflected in our attitude towards sin. Verse 4, he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And in verse 4, he's not talking just to those who may be mourning in earthly loss, but also that we mourn over the effects of sin in our lives and the world around us. We live in a fallen world because of the effects of sin. And so that's what we should mourn. We should see sin the way that God sees it and try to treat it the same way that he does. Jesus will echo these ideas in the parable of the Pharisee when we start thinking about, you know, who we are and how we should see sin. In Luke 18, there is this, the uh, parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. And you can see the Pharisee as the self-righteous and happy person that he's not like the sinner. You know, the tax collector, especially, he points out. And yet the tax collector 
humbly comes before God and cries out, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And, and that's where we should have that same self-estimation that we should rejoice in the fact that God chose to reconcile us through his son Jesus, even though we're sinners and we don't deserve it. But not only should we be mourning over our sins, but we should also meekly submit to God. It's funny, in, in uh, the Rochester district, we have a reading program and we have word lists that kids have to go through. And to be on grade level, there's one particular list and it has the word meek in it. And every time I see that word meek, I think of this particular passage because really, 10-year-olds, how often do they ever come across the word meek? So I always think, how did they pick that word to put into this list? But it's such a great word. If, if the students really understood what the word meek meant, they, it would really enrich their vocabulary. Because once again, the idea of meek doesn't mean weak, and I think that's a common misconception. You know, it was used by the Greeks to describe a horse that had been broken. It refers to the idea of power under control. So there's power there, but it's under control. So I, you know, I, I really like that term. Even Paul refers to it as an attribute of Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 10.1, Paul says, Now Paul, I, Paul, myself appeal to you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble among you in person, but bold toward you when absent. So, you know, it's the same word we get for the word gentleness in the fruit of the spirit in Galatians 5.23. It has the same root as the word praeus, which is what's being used in this passage. Um, and so for us as believers, I, we need to remember where our true source of power comes from. And it needs to, and once again, because it comes from God, it's going to be under control, but we need to tap into it. We know it comes from the Holy Spirit. And that as we enter into a new year, I want to tap into it anew each and every day. In verse 6, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Jesus will say it again a little bit different in, in Matthew 6, 33, and he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Or I, I think about Psalms 42, 1 through 2, where the psalmist says, as a deer longs for flowing streams, so I long for you, God. I thirst for you, God, the living God. So, going on in the verse 7, what true righteousness says it's reflected then in our attitude towards the Lord. So it's our attitude towards ourself, our attitude towards sin, and it's our attitude towards the Lord in verses 7 through 9. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. You know, we experience God's mercy when we trust Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And so, 
since we are to celebrate the fact that we have been shown mercy, then we're to show mercy as well. Micah 6.8 says, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is one passage for me that resonates, just the idea of giving mercy to others around me, because I know I, it is so quick for me sometimes to become impatient. I don't know if anybody else has that issue. All right, whether it's the driver who doesn't understand that it's icy and snowy out there and does silly things, all right? And now we could be getting down into the later part of this chapter where Jesus says, not only, it's not murder only if you kill someone, but if you say idiot or raka, okay, but we won't go there right now, okay? <laughs> but, you know, but that idea of showing mercy to those around us, you know, because we've been shown such great mercy. And so I know for myself, that's one of those things I'm praying about, whether it's the fifth graders in my classroom or the other people I come in contact with, how can I be more merciful? And um, so this particular passage, especially as I was studying, kind of just, you know, said, okay, Lord, I, I, I hear what you're saying. Um, in verse 8, though, he goes on to say, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. We seek to keep our hearts pure that we and others might see God in our lives today. Because purity is not a popular thing in our society, away from the world of Christ. Okay? This is, and it's so hard as we're bombarded with the temptations and distractions from all sides. And technology hasn't made it any easier. You know, and we have bigger issues, the pornography and things like that than ever before. And so this is one also that, man, that we as the church, how do we then help those who are struggling with this? And how do we as individuals, man, keep our way pure? Um, the psalmist says in Psalm 119, 9 through 15, it says, how can a young man or a young woman or even people my age keep their way pure? By keeping your word. I have sought you with all my heart. Don't let me wander from your commands. I have treasured your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. Lord, may you be blessed. Teach me your statutes. With my lips, I proclaim all the judgments from your mouth. I rejoice in the way revealed by your decrees as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and think about your ways. Proverbs 4, 23 through 27 says, guard your heart above all else. Man, guarding our heart. Like I said, we're getting ready to move into another <laughs> season of elections and things like that. And man, you talk about things that can cause our heart to fester and or our mind to rot as I listen through all of this stuff that comes. And I have to really learn just to kind of back off. But it says, guard your heart above all else, for it is the source of life. Don't let your mouth speak dishonestly. Don't let your lips talk deviously. Let your eyes look forward. Fix your gaze straight ahead. Carefully consider the path for your feet, and all your ways will be established. Don't turn to the right or to the left. Keep your feet away from evil. 
Oh, man. And Jesus then says that we should be peacemakers. Hopefully our lives should exemplify true peace in a troubled world. Um, and our world is a bit troubled right now. We live in such a world of conflict and turmoil. Non-believers should be able to see our peace both individually and corporately. And that's something I thought a lot about too as I was doing my studies for this is how, how much peace do people see in my own life? Am I a peace bringer or am I a peace, a peace killer? <laughs> you know, sometimes with my words, with my actions and my attitudes. You know, and this is something that's both individually and corporately. You know, Paul says in Romans 14, 19, so then let us pursue what promotes peace and what builds up one another. You know, we as individual believers and as the body of Christ, we're to be channels for God's mercy, for purity and peace. And then that's kind of then hopefully you know, for us as Calvary Chapel Rochester, that we can be that channel that people see in this community. So he goes on to say what true righteousness is, it's reflected in our attitudes then towards the world as well. In verse 10, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's face it, it's not easy to live as a true spirit-filled believer in this day and age. Our society is becoming less and less friendly with or tolerant of true Christianity. Therefore, we shouldn't be surprised that we run into conflict with the world and more persecution from it. it, it it's interesting, just this past Christmas Day, um, I was having a conversation with our soon-to-be 22-year-old nephew. Now, I don't know if you know many 22-year-olds, but you know, they definitely are strong in their opinions, and that's great, because I remember when I was 22, I think I still remember when I was 22. But, no, I do. I remember I was in the service and everything else, and I thought I had it all figured out, all right? But, you know, he and I got into a conversation on a very similar topic, you know, just this idea of tolerance and, and such, all right? And he just graduated from college, you know, at St. Thomas, and so had a, you know, a somewhat you know, religious education and everything. But it was, I found it really interesting, you know, that he was brought up in a Christian household and everything. But I was interested to hear how much liberal and progressive thinking had already infiltrated into his <coughs> psyche, all right? You know, and it's, it, you know, once again, it was very subtle, but it was there, you know? So the enemy's doing their, his job. You know, he's out there and he's, he's out there, you know, trying to twist truth to make it palatable, you know, not just for the younger generations, but even for, you know, older generations, you know, to make certain things acceptable. Even, I would say, in the Christian faith, when we look at even what we call Christendom or Christianity, there is that progressive liberal thinking that has infiltrated the church. And that just shocks me. 
you know, and as we then stand for truth, for the truth that comes from God's word, not from man trying to interpret it, you know, we need to be prepared for the persecution that it's going to bring because we know it's coming and it's coming more and more even in our own country. I would have never thought I would have been alive to see some of the things that have happened in our country, what are, is believed as acceptable and is truth supposedly in our country. Uh, we live in a society where pride is praise, not humility. The world seems to endorse sin, especially if you can get away with it. That, then it's even touted as even better, all right? And so we really shouldn't be surprised when Jesus himself said that we would be persecuted just as he was, because we know he stood up against sin and evil as well and was not listened to. Shows me how the world's at war with God while God is seeking yet to reconcile his enemies and make him his children. That's the cool thing about God, though, that hope is not lost. And we need to go out there and be sharing that with those around us, that there's only one source of truth. There's only one hope, and that's through Jesus Christ. So therefore, we should expect to be persecuted as we live differently than the world and how God and how God would have us live. And then Jesus expounds on this a little bit more when he says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Metaphors. I love metaphors. So these couple of some really good metaphors here to a believer's character. You know, and I know for those of us who've been in church any amount of time, we've heard these things before. You know, this idea of salt, how it preserves and it keeps from corruption and decay. But, you know, at the same time, the salt that would have been back in those days, if it was left out too long, it would actually then lose all of its savoriness. It would then lose its taste and it wouldn't be good for anything. And so I was thinking for myself as a Christ follower, man, with my witness against sin, you know, is it, you know, an example of righteousness? I don't want it to be flavorless. You know, because to me, when if it's flavorless, that means my witness is not being consistent and it's not going to be good for anything then. So that's one of those things I want to I think about this year. As for being lights, we know where to reflect his light. You know, we're supposed to be kind of like his little tiny moons, you know, because it's not our light that people are supposed to see. It's his light that they're going to see in us or off of us. Um, so that others can see Jesus' love and desire to reconcile the lost. Yeah, I was, I was raised in a Baptist church. So yeah, this good Southern Baptist church and this idea that I mean, we need to be out there sharing the gospel, it continues to resonate with me. And I know that happens in a lot of different ways, but man, we live in a lost world and what, how, are, how are they going, they meaning those who don't have Jesus gonna see it if they don't see it in us? Because let's face it, the world's looking at us. They're looking at the church and saying, so what's so different? <sighs> 
Plus, we're not to hide or even cover our light. And I, I wonder, I thought to myself, how do I cover the light? How do I cover Jesus's light besides maybe not living the life that he's calling me to? But maybe it's just being overoccupied with the things of this world. You know, not doing anything wrong, but maybe I'm just too busy. Too busy on things that aren't important. So our lives should speak for God as we uh, live our lives before the people around us. And so I ask myself, is my life speaking for God? So these are some of the elements that Jesus is talking about with true righteousness and what it is. And then in verse 17, Jesus begins to tell us how true righteousness comes about. Now, first of all, imagine the hush over the crowd after hearing what kind of a person that God blesses, all right? Because probably these people are going like, well, that can't be me then. It's like, how, how, how am I ever going to be blessed like that? They were probably shaking their heads and whispering to themselves, we can never attain this kind of character. How can we have this righteousness? Where does it come from? Um, they were probably wondering how Jesus' teaching related to what they had been taught all of their lives. What about Moses and the law? Now, I always, I always think about the Pharisee, who's the Pharisees that are there. What, the, what were they thinking when Jesus was doing this? And I bet they were fuming. I bet the Pharisees were extremely beginning to get a little annoyed. After all, they probably hadn't experienced any of this either. And they were supposed to be the religious teachers of the day. See, Jesus knew that the Pharisees and scribes were concerned about the minute details of conduct, yet they neglected their major matter of character. They had an external artificial righteousness based on the law. But Jesus begins to describe a righteousness that begins internally in the heart. Jesus knew that true spirit-led character would bring about right conduct. And so Jesus says in verse 17, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus made it clear that he was not here to destroy the law. You know, we've been learning about that in the Old Testament, especially in Leviticus with Pastor Don. So, however, the Pharisees thought that he was, by his authority and by his act, he was doing this, He, they, excuse me, that the Pharisees thought that he was destroying the law by his authority and by his um, teaching and his activities. You know, once again, he would heal the sick on the Sabbath. You know, he would do all these things that the law said you shouldn't do. You know, and many of these laws that the Pharisees themselves had added to God's word. You know, and he wasn't teaching under any recognized authority. Instead, he was teaching with authority. I, I like that passage where it says that he was teaches with authority. 
you know? Um, he would hang out with tax collectors and other unclean people of society, which means that Jesus wasn't into following traditions established by the Pharisees. And I think we as believers as well need to think about, are we following man's traditions or are we following the truth as we live our lives? See, Pharisees have always thought that righteousness consisted in performing or not performing certain actions. But Jesus said that true righteousness, his righteousness, is centered in the attitudes of our hearts. Jesus didn't get rid of the law, but fulfilled the law with his life, his death and his resurrection. So you can see that there's two ways of looking at bringing an end to something. I found this example and I thought it was really quite interesting when we start thinking about this. So imagine I had an, a an acorn, all right? So I can bring an end to an acorn by I could set it on a rock, I could take a hammer and I could smash it, right? The end of the acorn, okay? And it would be destroyed. Or I could take that acorn I could make sure that all the right conditions were there that it needed. I could then plant it into the ground. And what's it going to grow into? No, an, an oak tree, right? All right. I always thought as a kid it was an acorn tree, but that's okay. <laughs> Not that I saw many oak trees growing up in California. So, so the acorn was also, though, have come to an end. Because it would no longer be the acorn itself, but it would have turned into what it was designed to be, an oak tree. But the acorn itself would have come to an end. So I want us to think of the law kind of like the acorn. The law which reveals the holiness of God and our need to be holy just like him was planted through the Mosaic law and prophets. And then Jesus came and then died on a tree and rose again to bring the law to completion and revealed itself through God's mercy, his grace and love. The law can only be fulfilled in our lives through the righteousness of Christ. And that's, you know, when Jesus dies and rose again, he completed the law. It's his righteousness that we have. It's not our own. And that's how the law was completed. Romans 5, 1 through 11 says, Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance Endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at that right time Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, will we be saved through him from uh, wrath? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, 
having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. Well, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, rest of chapter five through seven, discusses the attitude of a truly regenerated heart. And I would really encourage you to go and read the rest of that. But as we kind of start to wrap things up, I want us to kind of think about how righteousness works in our daily lives. The application piece. As we start thinking about this new year, how is it going to be different for us as believers? As Christians or Christ followers or believers, whatever term is, you know, you, you use, we need to understand we should have the law written on our hearts. The Pharisees lived the law for people to see how good they were we as Christians should live the law for people to see how good God is. So since we have the truth of God's word, since we are to be salt and light, do our lives truly reflect that? In 2020, how will this be lived out and seen? And I, these are the categories that I've been thinking about in my own life, in, in my family, in my priorities, in my time, talents, and treasures. I always think about how about looking at any areas of apathy or complacency in my walk with Christ? Because it is so easy to just kind of, life gets going so smoothly and everything, and it's so easy to just become complacent and apathetic. And how about sharing the good news to those around us? Are they going to see, first of all, the good news? And then they still need to hear it, though. So my prayer for myself and for all of us is that God gives us a 2020 vision of our lives in this upcoming year. I know. I, I, I had to go there. And not only that he gives us this vision for our lives, but that also for his will and for us to be able to live it out in this upcoming year. Let's pray.